Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. So last week, uh, last week we continued our conversation. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we jumped into our mission series that says, if, if we recognize that this world is not our home, that God does not call us to settle here and get comfortable here, but he actually would uh, have us to keep our eyes set on a far country moving toward him, then he would probably have a mission for us, something, an assignment for us, something that we could be doing uh, faithful as we live out the here and now with our eyes set on him then and there. And so we were entered into this mission series, and these last two weeks, we're taking an opportunity to jump into a conversation, not to exhaust a conversation or to feel like uh, it's a box that we could check off to say, okay, now we're good, now we're covered, but to, to enter a conversation that says, if God, if God created this place to be good, if he had his blessing all over it, and if it was God's design that we would be diverse, that we would have diverse people groups filling this earth, and if we look ahead to a banquet table that is a diverse table, we also recognize that we live in kind of a broken in-between that looks neither like what God intended at the beginning of creation nor what he's aiming for at the end when we celebrate together the way that he created us as diverse peoples, and we're living in this brokenness here and now, and we as a church need to engage in it. We don't have to fix the world, but we had better be faithful, right? And so we started the conversation last week to say, how might God have us engage? What, how did Jesus engage in this broken in-between? What word did he have? What, what was the kind of life that he led? And how can we follow after him? What mission might he have us go on, uh, especially, especially around um, racial divide in our own community, in our nation, um, that, is, uh, that has people at war with each other in a way that God never, ever, ever intended. And we are in it, and we need to engage with it. Um, Dr. Perry is here this morning. Just... Uh, a little bit of an introduction to Dr. Perry. Uh, Dr. Perry is a godly man. Dr. Perry is a man who led, uh, has led our um, Converge Great Lakes, our district, for over a decade and has brought to it a level of leadership that we much needed, uh, served well and served faithfully. And just, just recently, like this was his first week of retirement, uh, and in talking with Dr. Perry... In talking with Dr. Perry, his wife needs to remind him that he's retired. 
So he's preaching here. He's bringing the message here this morning. Um, I am grateful to Dr. Perry for his leadership in Converge. I'm grateful to Dr. Perry for his relationship with us at Damascus Road. I'm grateful to Dr. Perry for his uh, mentoring in my own life. I talked last week about growing up listening to a single story and about how we need to start listening to more stories than just the one, the one maybe that we've been told. And Dr. Perry has been probably the key person in my life who is expanding the stories that I'm hearing, and I'm grateful for that. And so I'm grateful for uh, his presence this morning and his leadership this morning. He's not going to be bringing um, kind of a, um, a stand-up-here-and-talk-at-you kind of sermon. He's intentionally going to be sitting down and trying to have more of a conversation, and he'll be breaking us down and saying, I want you to, here's something to think about, and I want you to talk about this, and I want you to wrestle with this, and I want us to be humble, I want us to be open to hearing and, um, and engaging. Also, a reminder, Dr. Perry expects response, okay? So, um, if you hear something that you agree with, an amen is more more than fitting, okay? And I, I want us to be able to step out and say, we, we welcome you here, and, um, and we're going to respond, okay? And if he pushes that, that's a good push, okay? Um, let's pray, and then we'll go right into a video clip, and then Dr. Perry. Father, we recognize your presence, and we ask that you would continue to open us up to it, in a world that, um, that is both broken and a world that you are working in, would you help us to partner with you? Would you help us to come alongside what you are already doing and what you are already trying to move us toward? Would you make us people of the gospel, that we live it, that we receive it, and that, we, that it flows out of us? Not, not simply in an I-can't-wait-for-heaven kind of way, but I want to be a part of bringing heaven here. I want to be a part of your kingdom coming here. And I pray that this morning, that this space would be one of humility, that this space would be one of challenge, that this space would be one of growing conviction around who you are and who you call us to be. Help us Lord. I pray that you would speak through Dr. Perry, that you'd give him great boldness and great faithfulness as he engages your word and your people. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Ladies, hi, I'm, I'm just really, really glad you're here today. Um, I know that some of you are new to the Army, and all of us are new to this post, so I thought we could pull our resources and cover whatever questions we want. So why don't we start with item number one, food. If the commissary is out of something, where's the best place to shop? Well, I tried big style and it's okay. But I keep thinking my water's going to break right in the checkout aisle. That takes care of food shopping. So item number two. Laundry? Oh, well, the base washing machines don't work. Full of sand from the swamp machines. Oh, I'll take care of that. Well, I've already complained. Well, we'll just go to the general. <laughs> in the meantime, the laundromat in town's okay. But they won't let you wash the colored things in their machines. In a public laundromat? didn't make any sense to me either, but I'm telling you, they have a big sign right in the window that says, Whites Only. 
<laughs> what? How do they mean white people only? That's awful. Your husband is wearing a uniform of a country that allows a place to... to say that his laundry is not good enough when he could die for... I'm sorry, I just... That's all right, honey. But I know what my husband's fighting for, and that's why I can smile. My husband will never ask for respect. And he'll give respect to no man who hasn't earned it. The rest of his family is the same way. And anybody who doesn't respect that can keep this washing machine because my baby's clothes are going to be clean anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I just go by number two. <laughs> Well, good morning. It is really an honor for me to be here with you. I want to thank Pastor Shannon and, and the elders for allowing uh, this old man to come and spend a little time with you. This is my first week of retirement. <laughs> my wife is saying you're just faking it. I did a wedding yesterday in Gurney, Illinois, and preached on marriage. And today I'm talking about diversity, quite a contrast here. I want to have a conversation with you, and I really intended to be a conversation for the next 35 plus minutes on a topic that um, unfortunately has caused great angst and divide, not just now, but throughout our history. You see, we live in a country that unfortunately has been built on the backs of race. It doesn't mean that every person in this country is a racist. Can I get an amen for that? But it does mean that we live in a world and a society by which many of the decisions, presuppositions, and actions that individuals take, and even more importantly, that institutions take, is based on the lens of a racialized society that judges people on the color of their skin and not the content of their character. And so I, I want us to let our defenses down. Uh, you, some of you have heard me preach before, and I preach like a black preacher. I know I do. But there won't be any screaming today, you know. You know, it won't be saying, come on, Damascus Road, what's wrong with you? But I do want to begin a conversation. A couple of things. I'm going to give you a couple of good resources at the end for you to check out. Secondly, if you want this entire PowerPoint, it's a lot of content, and you're not going to be able to stay up with some of it, you can email me directly, and you'll have my email at the end, and I will personally send it to you. So you can relax. You don't have to worry about trying to take all these five million notes because I want us to engage. Uh, what I want you to do in starting out right now is look to your right and look to your left. This is going to be the people you're going to interact with in a couple of different situations. I want you to break down the groups of three and four, and there should be some questions right behind me. Are those questions up there? Okay. okay. What I want you to do, and you only have seven minutes to do this, so some of you who like to talk, don't just dominate the conversation. And you might not be able to get through all three of these questions, but at least begin with the first one. And if you can try to get down to the second one, I just want you to talk right in your groups, right in your, just 
pull together. I want you to talk through and honestly share some reflections on these questions. Now, a couple of caveats. If you don't feel comfortable sharing, you don't have to. Okay? Secondly, whatever you share, I, I'm, I want it to be a safe environment. So don't react to what somebody might say. In other words, there are no dumb answers. Amen? Amen. Okay. Turn to your groups. Find three or four people. I don't care if you know them or not. Matter of fact, I appreciate you. And walk through these questions. Okay. Stay in your groups. Stay in your groups because we're going to come back in just a moment like this. As you focus for the next 30 minutes or so, I want you to walk away with one or two handles around this critical question. This is my big idea. How can we as Christ followers embrace diversity that goes beyond what is politically correct? Did you all hear what I just said? So you're supposed to say at least amen on that. Okay. That goes beyond what is politically correct but is rooted in the heart and character of God. Um, my journey is a kind of strange journey. Uh, some of you might know a little bit about my testimony, but I grew up in the 1950s and 60s when the thought of a black preacher speaking to a predominantly Anglo church was not even something people could conceive of. It was almost like iPads. Seriously. <laughs> it was science fiction. I grew up in the inner city of Chicago, in one of, if not the most segregated cities in all of America, in a place called Woodlawn. I grew up seeing my father beat my mother, and then in the arms of another woman at age seven. I grew up around gangs that tried to take your life and didn't care who you were. But I also grew up in a place, and this is Chicago now, where I did not see but one Caucasian person before seventh grade. Wow. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about I didn't live in some rural area or whatever, or even the suburbs. I grew, I, I grew up in the city, y'all. <laughs> and then somehow God began to help me in my experience, in my journey, to be exposed to a world that I didn't even know existed. My mother lied. It was, I call it a holy lie. Because <laughs> she wanted me to go to a, a better school, so she got somebody's address in a better school district. <laughs> Don't do that, guys. We got the chief of schools here. He'll report on you, okay? Don't do that. And so I went to a school where, in seventh grade, was in a predominantly Jewish community. And there were some people of color there, but there weren't as much, maybe 15, 20% of the school. I can't remember. So automatically, they put me in the lowest classroom. Automatically. And after a semester, I kind of aced everything. They said, well, maybe this guy is kind of smart. They put me in the top classroom. 
where there might have been two or three other black people beside myself, and mostly Jewish people. And that began another journey in my life that culminated with me trusting Christ many, many years ago now through a predominantly Caucasian organization called the Navigators. Maybe some of you have heard of them. I mean, I went to my first conference with the Navigators, and it was in Carlinville, Illinois. Now, those of you from Wisconsin, you might not have a clue what I'm talking about. And I don't think there was nobody my age here, so whatever. So none of y'all know what I'm talking about. So, uh, but back in the day, when you mentioned Carlinville was next to a place called Cairo, Back in the day, people understood what was going on. Because Cairo in Illinois now, we're not talking about Mississippi or Alabama, was the heart of the Ku Klux Klan. So my first conference <laughs> with this navigator group of these white, young college students at the University of Illinois was going on a trip to a campground. Now, some of y'all grew up with camp. I don't know what camp is. I'm from the hood. <laughs> from a campground near Cairo. So you can imagine as this bus is leaving Chicago and going this, that I'm kind of getting a little nervous. I said, where are we going? What's going on here? I stepped off the bus. This was a conference about 500 kids. There were 19 black folk there. It was the biggest black representation they ever had. They were excited. <laughs> and I'll never forget this to the day I die. There was a young white man there. When I got off the bus, he said, sir, may I carry your bag? Now, for some of you, that doesn't mean anything. But for me, who grew up being afraid to go into certain neighborhoods, for me, a product of the civil rights movement, God the Holy Spirit used that to break my heart and to show me maybe this Christian thing might be real. Well, I went on from there, and God led in very strange ways. I graduated from a predominantly white seminary. I hooked up with a predominantly white Bible college named Moody. Was a professor there. Then I got hooked up with a predominantly white denomination. Not only were they white, they were Swedish. called the Baptist General Conference, now known as Converge. Fancy name. <laughs> and became the only, for many years, person of color in leadership in that worldwide denomination. And then became the target of all type of racial bigotry. 
not just within that denomination, but from other white evangelicals who continued, continued to negate my culture, my race, and my experience. Who told me, you, you don't be too loud now because you're going to be angry. You're coming across angry. Who told me, wait, wait, what? Why are you talking about this black thing all the time? And we, we love you. We have a black friend. It's you. and continue to demean me as a person. I'm not talking about 20 years ago, but even up to the last year or so. I wrote an email to my former assistant, because <clears throat> I was about to speak in this church, a white pastor. I'm not going to say anything else beside that. Didn't have the decency to even call me wrote an email to my secretary, said, now we know Dr. Perry is coming, but you need to tell him we don't like all these titles up here. As a matter of fact, he tries to run converge like a black church. Let me just share for a few minutes a little bit of my journey as it relates to helping you to address this critical question. How can we as Christ followers embrace diversity that goes beyond what is politically correct but is rooted in the heart and character of God? There are four things I'm going to touch on, it's going to be real brief, that I feel is critical to you as a congregation developing not only clarity as terms of your thinking about the area of diversity, but also strategies to be effective in being kingdom-centered. Not diversity-centered, but kingdom-centered. Gospel-centered. Are, are you hearing what I'm saying? Number one, develop a biblical theology of diversity. Number two, understand institutional racism and white privilege. Number three, understand your cultural context and the importance of good cultural exegesis. Number three, be intentional about creating an inclusive community. Okay, you need... <clears throat> Several years ago, go to the next slide, please. I was writing a book. It's called Building Unity in the Church in the New Millennium. And our, this is a kind of a strange book. It took almost three years to write it. And I wrote it with a whole lot of other men and women. And I had to kind of frame it and all that kind of stuff. So I was at Moody. I was a professor. And I heard a good friend of mine by the name of Dr. John Piper. I don't know if you know that name. Dr. John and I have been friends for many years. Matter of fact, I had one of his children in, in class at Moody and did the premarital counseling for one of his sons. 
So we're close friends. He came to Moody, and he preached a message at a big conference we used to have called Founders Week. They still do. <clears throat> Talking about how diversity is a heart matter. And he preached from Revelations chapter 5. And man, did he knock it out the park. <laughs> Woo! I'm going to start as a black preacher. It's a joke, guy. So I had breakfast with him the next morning. We're friends. And he had his wife there, and he had his daughter, who he had just adopted, I believe, a few years earlier, who's African-American. A lot of people don't know that. So we were talking, and, and I, said, uh, I said, John, great message. Great exegesis. Wonderful. But John, you missed one important thing. Now, if you know who Dr. John Piper is, not too many people can say stuff like that to him. <laughs> so he picked up in the chair, and hmm. Yeah. I said, you are correct. We need a great more emphasis on the theological development of what the Bible teaches about diversity. Because we hear all kinds of messages, and most of them are not. I, I've got my water, thank you. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah. well, you're, this you're, is a colder one. No, I don't need a cold one. <laughs> it, it'll, it'll make my throat better. Th thank you for your kindness. <clears throat> we need, obviously, personal relationships. In other words, it's hard to develop a clear theology on diversity if you don't even know somebody of color. But we as believers need to go beyond that. We need to insist on systematic and structural changes in our communities. We can no longer live our middle-class prosperous life, come and worship in our middle-class prosperous churches and be oblivious to the institutional and structural issues that are going on in society. A few of you all said amen, but that's okay. So he looked. He said, hmm. Hmm. So I want to start out real briefly, helping you theologically. Now, you're going to need a Bible for this. You're going to get back in your groups. And you need to have one person, at least, who has a Bible who can read all three of these passages. And then you, I want you to talk about it from the perspective. Go back to that question, please, to that original question. Can you go back, Paul? Yeah. I want you to talk about these passages from the perspective of this particular question. Okay? Everybody understand what's going on? Get back in your groups. And I'll make sure I personally send this. Let me give you four little insights on how to think theologically versus politically. Number one, we need to understand as believers, as Christ followers, that God is the author of diversity, not man. Amen? Now, I know there are some in our society that say, 
Liberals are behind diversity. Or a particular political party is behind diversity. Or people who have overreacted are behind diversity. That is not a biblical worldview. The wonderful thing about heaven is, number one, it was built for black preachers. Did you all know that? No, really. Because I'm not going to be constrained to 45 minutes every time I preach. And you guys are generous compared to most Anglo congregations. Trust me. It's 30 minutes. Oh, you went over. <laughs> but secondly, it's going to be people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, worshiping God together. Number two, heaven is the place where the walls between the races will be permanently dismantled. Why do I say that? Too many believers have approached this area of diversity from a point of view of anger. I know I have. God wants you to do what he's called you to do. But he doesn't want you, he wants you to also understand that ultimately you're not going to make this place heaven. That helps you to not get bitter. That also helps you to persevere. Because when you start talking on your jobs, we're going to get real specific here, with your neighbors, with your family members who might live in a different part of Wisconsin, with those people who are voting for particular political candidates about diversity, expect some pushback, amen? But keep in mind that ultimately, God's going to win because heaven is the place where all this stuff ain't going to be happening no more. Amen? Yeah! Number three, Christ came to tear down the walls between the races and to create one new man in Christ. Now, some people have misinterpreted that insight from Ephesians 2. Christ did not come to make black people white and white people black. That's called color blindness. And I've heard many good Christians say, man, Dwight, why do you even have to talk about this? We should just be, that's not even an issue. You hear me? Some political people say that. If you listen to CNN, some of those places, MSNBC, and even Fox News. <laughs> Whatever, okay. <laughs> Boy, I lost somebody here now. You will hear this theme, well, boy, the Democratic Party or whatever, you just use race. You just trying to divide people by race. When it talks about in Ephesians that God came to tear down the walls, it's not talking about God came to make you like me and me like you. What it's talking about in Christ is that we should celebrate who we are and we should celebrate that because of that we can become one. Amen? Number four, partiality is not just politically wrong, it is sin, according to James. 
You walk down the street and you judge somebody who's begging just because of their position, not knowing their circumstance, you've just committed the sin of partiality. You don't know how they got there on that corner. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Now, I'm not saying you should run and give money to everybody runs up to you. But be very careful to not fall into the trap of partiality. See, if I was to walk in here with my hair all everywhere, well, I can't do it anymore, I'm too old, I don't have any hair. But back in the day, y'all, I did. <laughs> and with my pants hanging down and certain symbols and tattoos, some of y'all, maybe not at Damascus Road, but in most churches. <laughs> I'm serious. You all are a great church at accepting people where they're at. Give your hand. Give yourselves a hand clap, seriously. I'm serious on that. But in most of the converged churches I've been around, they would say, security, security. <laughs> Thinking theologically and not politically simply means <coughs> that I'm more concerned about the voice of God than I am about the voice of people. On Thanksgiving, when you go up north or wherever you go, and they start talking about Hillary or whatever, and they start talking about these black people don't want to work, what are you going to do right then? Right then. Well, I hope so. But I'm just asking the question. I'm not talking about Hillary. I don't care about that. But I do care about misrepresenting a whole group of people. All y'all in the inner city just walk out and get shot. I didn't say it. Somebody else said that. Secondly, I wanted to talk about real briefly institutional racism. Now, I could have spent my whole time on this, but I got 14 more minutes because I'm not in heaven yet. <laughs> so let me get to this. Institutional racism is an intentional and or unintentional system of excluding individuals based on race, color, ethnic background from shared participation within the institution through covert, usually subtle means. When I grew up, there was institutional racism, but there was also overt racism. I'm not talking about just down south. I'm talking about all over America. If I were to walk into Cicero, some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about. In the early 1960s, I would not be walking out of Cicero. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Now we have become enlightened in this country. We are no longer racist. We have a black president. 
No. No. Now racism has become insidious. Now racism is perpetuated by structures and systems that give people what we call privilege just because they are of a certain skin color. Wikipedia would say it like this, white privilege or white skin privilege is a term for societal privilege that benefit people identified as white in Western countries beyond what is commonly experienced by non-white people under the same social, political, or economic circumstances. Academic perspectives such as critical race theory and whiteness studies use the concept of white privilege to analyze how racism and racialized societies affect the lives of white or white-skinned people. I'd like to play a little video clip that I think would communicate it much better than what I ever could. coming to worship with us this morning. It's so good to see you all here. No, that's not the video. We are... Um, that wrong clip. We're in the middle of, of, of a... That's okay. That's a good guy, though, is Pastor P. Swarkowski. <laughs> Hold on one second. If we can't get it, I'll just move on. If I, if I can't get that, we'll move on, uh, Pastor Shannon. I think we can get it in a few minutes. Well, let's move on. <laughs> and if you can get it, we'll come back to it. Go back to the definition, please. Can you, can you pull that definition back up? <clears throat> Okay. Now, I need some audience participation now. I need, I need a few people to take some risk. And we only got two minutes to do this because we're not in heaven. But when you hear this term, white privilege, emotionally, what comes to your mind? Give me, stand up. You have to say your name. You can be anonymous. I don't care. What you say? Unfairness. Okay, unfairness. What else comes to your mind? Anger. 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 What else comes to your mind? <coughs> Pardon me. Discuss. Discuss. Oblivious. Oblivious. Part. I hold on. What you say? Somebody said something. Okay. Thank you. Anybody else? Very good. Very good. Very good. They don't. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Shame. Shame. 
Let me give you Perry's definition. I gave you this little technical definition. White privilege is a white person not really understanding that because they are white, the deck has already been stacked for them to win the game. Now, not all of them win. You know what I'm saying? Because even white people do stupid stuff. Praise the Lord. <laughs> That's a joke, guys. <laughs> but they come in with inherent advantages. that a, a non-white person does not have. And the problem is, they don't even know it. That's why they're not individually a racist, even though they are perpetrating a racialized society. Ooh, that was kind of heavy. That was kind of heavy. They might not be individually racist, but unless they are not only aware of their privilege, but taking proactive steps to deal with structural and systemic injustice, they are perpetrating a racialized society, a society by which decisions continue to be rooted in race. Did y'all get that? That was kind of heavy. The video would have been better, but that's okay. Did, did you get that? Okay, we got to move now. Once again, if you want this, just, just let me know. Go to the next slide. Secondly, thirdly, the third component of you as a church really developing and embracing diversity is not only developing a biblical theology of diversity, not only being people who understand white privilege, but also understanding one's cultural context. Uh, many years ago now, I was finishing up my PhD at Trinity Divinity School. Now, Trinity has a reputation for being the Harvard of the seminaries. <laughs> and it's true. <laughs> Woo, Jesus. And the person in charge of the PhD program, uh, when I was there, he started, matter of fact, had just retired from Michigan State University. He was Professor Emeritus at Michigan State. In other words, he was a bad brother in the area of what we call descriptive or qualitative research. I mean, he was a bad brother. So they had me go through all kinds. It took me seven years. Now, my wife got her doctorate in three years, a couple of reasons. She's much smarter than me, and I'm much dumber than her. So those are the reasons. Okay. <laughs> so it took me seven years, y'all. So I'm coming to the end of this deal. And they have you defend your, you have to do oral comprehensives and written comprehensives and, and defend your proposal. I'm not going to bore you with all the rigmarole that made you go through. I mean, it's not rigmarole, but whatever. Okay. So I'm coming to the end, and, 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 and they, I'm, I think I'm at my dissertation defense. I can't remember. It's all blur that last year. And one of the professors asked me a question. It just seemed like out of the clues guy, I'm at the committee. They call it the examination committee. 
Is, it, is culture sinful? And I react and said, yes, culture is sinful. Well, if you've been a PhD program that long, you realize when you're given the wrong answer. And that was the wrong answer. So I said, I quickly pivoted, as some politicians say. I said, no, culture is not sinful. Humankind is sinful. And humankind contributes as people come together to do sinful acts together. If we're going to develop as a church to really penetrate our community and not just continue to live on our privilege, we have got to work hard at understanding the different cultures in America. We are not a monocultural society. We are a diverse society. And no, I'm going to say it, I'm going to offend some of y'all, I know it already. I do not believe we need to make America great again. I know, don't clap, don't clap, because I don't want to offend your fellow parishioners. I'm not getting political here. Because making America great again, when a black person hears that, what they hear is make America white again. Make America racist again. Make America where I can't go into certain neighborhoods again. Make America where I can't vote again. So we need to be careful here, especially as Christ followers, to not contribute to that nonsense. That's some nonsense. We must, we must understand a person's cultural context and background to create a strategy for embracing diversity. If not, we will be hindered from being able to break down barriers of racial miscasting, which are reinforced due to our isolation. Remember one of those opening questions I had about who's coming to your house? You can tell if you're living in isolation, not by whether you have a few people of color at this church, but by who is eating dinner at your house? Who is breaking bread with you at your house? Significant reduction of this isolation creates an ability to look at life through the lens of that other person's culture. Culture is the integrated pattern of socially acquired knowledge, particularly ideas, beliefs, and values mediated through language, which a people uses to interpret. That's the main part I want you to get up there. Which a people uses to interpret experience and generate patterns of behavior. How do we begin to understand another's context? Number one, we need to realize that all of us preach heresy. What does that mean? Because of our sin nature, we all think we're right. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So we all think what we value and, and how we look at life is right. 
we need to understand that all of us, especially Christians, who put a little Bible around it and misinterpret the text, are perpetrating a racialized society when we realize that, well, you know, why does our service have to be 90 minutes? Is that in the Bible? Or is that just a convenience for us as white people? We approach life and its experiences not in a vacuum. <clears throat> we are all proud of our cultural conditioning. We approach life and its experiences not in a vacuum, but from within the context of our culture. We are biased and influenced by our cultural context. And to a large degree, we are the sum total of our cultural context. We must begin to see ourselves and our belief systems as a reflection of our cultural motif and not solely a reflection of absolute truth. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that the word of God is not the word of God. But what I am saying is this. When you go into the Bible, if you don't know how to do proper exegesis and hermeneutics, you're going to look at it from the framework of your own cultural background. And you're going to develop conclusions that you think are biblical when they're just cultural. Truth is not relative. However, our understanding of truth is culturally conditioned. Good cultural exegesis, that's a big word. In other words, good, the ability to understand and get beneath our culture. That's what exegesis means. Comes from the point of view that our interpretation of life are going to be skewed because we're culturally conditioned worldview. We always approach the text of life knowing that our applications are being bathed in our presuppositions. If this is the case, and obviously I believe it is, then we need to have a critical skill. If we're going to get beyond our own frame of reference, what is that? We need to be able to identify what our presuppositions are, and then we need to identify the presuppositions of others within another culture. Did you hear what I said? Let me make it personal real quick. When something happens, I have to be careful to not say to my wife, because I won't say it to any of you all, well, you know, that's just how white folk are. I have to be careful about that. That's just how white folk are. I got an email from a, from a leading pastor just a week and a half ago who I had mentored and invested in and gave my life to, who made a major decision, even though I've been investing in him, major decision, and, and, and didn't think to even tell me about it. And we've been meeting for two months. And yet, just want to let you know this is about to become public. It's been something behind the scenes. And I said, what? I opened the door for this. Now, if he's a black person, I would say, don't be offended, but I'm just trying to illustrate I opened the door for this Negro. Be alive. Some of y'all got offended. That's okay. But he going to pull some kind of surprise thing like this? Well, that's just what white people do. We need to look at things like, I just mentioned, time versus event. I'm not going to get into that. We operate out of a great deal of cultural insensitivity and arrogance. 
when we maintain our own cultural presuppositions as correct regardless of our context. Form and methodology become the normative value of truth versus true truth, which transcends time, people, and culture. Morris Inch suggests that a practical way of viewing culture is as a context in which we may encounter the living God as a means rather than a goal. Instead of being threatened by outsiders, we need to view other cultures as vehicles through which the gospel may be expressed. How do you do good cultural exegesis? Number one, pay close attention to the smallest details of the people you are seeking to understand. Don't come to premature judgments. Find out where people gather. If you want to try to, for example, in Madison, if you want to understand a little bit about African-American culture here, go to J.P.'s Barbershop off of Gammon's Road. And sit in there, you're going to look strange. <laughs> sit in there for about five hours. You're going, to, you're going to learn a whole lot, seriously, about stuff through the lens of an African-American person. I'm serious. J.P.'s Barbershop off of Gammon Road. He's like my son, so I just gave him a plug, okay. And get a haircut. He does that too. Pay attention to external customs. Interact with people from that culture. Analyze the core values of that culture. For example, real quickly, in the African-American community, what, what this white pastor didn't understand is that in slavery, six days we were a slave, but on Sunday we were deacon so-and-so. He didn't understand that. He didn't understand that even today, the only institution that black people still really run is the black church. He didn't understand that. So you can call your pastor Dwight and Shannon and all that, but if you do that in a black church, woo! Talk about the wrath of some black women going to come on you. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> because he didn't have a cultural context. Are, are you understanding what I'm saying? It's not a pride thing. He didn't have a cultural context. Real quickly, structural implications to embracing diversity. Pastor Shannon, I've gone on my time. I apologize. No, I'm serious. I apologize, really. I apologize. I, I do. I apologize, really. Seriously. Real quickly. I'll get through this and sit down. Real quickly, believers need to be informed regarding the growing cultural diversity of our society, and not just from cable news. Number two, identify those areas of our Christian traditions that have been affected by culture. Number three, identify and discourage organizational approaches that are ethnocentric in nature. I was toward the end of my PhD program at Trinity, and uh, they do have, it's an excellent school. I'm not going to downplay my school. I wrote a paper for a, a certain professor, and Trinity is known as a school, a Harvard of seminaries. If, if you write all the books on exegesis, Greek, or not, they're from a lot of Trinity professors. Well, this professor wrote me a note on my paper. If we had known that you wrote this badly, we never would have let you in this program. Now, I'm almost toward the end of the deal. Now, thank God I was a little older than the typical student. But secondly, he just didn't understand the cultural context. Now, I believe in writing well. I've written five books. Dwight Klaus helped me on a couple of them. I'm going to give my man Dwight a little plug on that. Yeah. 
He's an excellent writer. I've written five or six books. I can't remember now. Okay? So I believe in good writing. Are you hear what I'm saying? But in the black community, they don't ask what seminary you went to. They don't even ask, can you write? They ask, can you preach, man? And so for 40 years, I've done okay with that. Even with throat cancer. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Okay? So they ask, can you preach in the black community? Then we fill in these other things. He didn't understand that. Initiate organizational strategies that promote reciprocal relationships with similar institutions of color. This is so important for a church like the Mass World. We've got churches even in Converge that are churches of color. You need to connect with them. You need to know right here in this community. You need to connect with them. You need to do partnership together. And I know you're doing that. Pastor Shannon has a relationship with Wright Middle School. I don't know if you all know that. That is tremendous. That's tremendous. That's what evangelical churches need to be about, not just having a good time on Sunday. Model and encourage others to develop and maintain positive inter-ethnic relationships. Develop cross-cultural skills of communication. Help persons integrate their social ethnic culture within the majority community. Empower members of minority groups. Teach and preach a Christian commitment to justice. Magnify and celebrate diversity. Amen. You know, even Damascus Road can celebrate African American History Month. You can do that. Most folk come in and say, why are y'all doing that? You got three black people here. <laughs> because African American history is American history. Integrate into the teaching of local church on a regular basis a worldview that celebrates and reinforces the value of diversity. One last verse. Why should we embrace diversity? After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Did you, did you see that, gang? Every nation. All tribes. Including the Latino people that are here illegally. that live right here on Park Street, about a mile away. Make America great again, some nonsense. <laughs> Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they crowd with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Why do we need to embrace diversity? Because we're just trying to get caught up to how it's going to be in heaven. And some of us, at the great Bema seat, that's the judgment of believers, in case you don't understand that theologically. There's going to be a judgment for non-believers. They're going to be cast into eternal fire. But there's also going to be a judgment for believers. Did you know? You're not going to lose your salvation if you trust in Christ. But every joking thing you and I have done said, or thought. It's going to come on a big, and it's going to be bigger than a 60-inch TV. 
so the whole universe can see whether or not we lived as kingdom people here and now. A couple of resources. Number one, you can go on Amazon if you want to get this book. This is a halfway decent book. <laughs> but I'm really pushing this book, especially for Anglo-Christians. It's called Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson. Matter of fact, uh, Dr. Emerson wrote one of the forwards of my book. Uh, was a man, my name is Dr. John Perkins, leaders in the whole area of racial reconciliation and thought. I really encourage every believer, white or black, but especially Anglos, to get this book. It will, it will rock your socks. It really will. Father, thank you so much for these gracious and godly people putting up with this old man. I am sorry that I went over their time. So bless this congregation. Bless Pastor Shannon and the elders. Bless them as they celebrate communion, which gives us about the basis to be able to embrace diversity. We love you, and we certainly need you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. My email should be right there if you want, if you want a copy of this.